Hello and welcome to Tax Yak, a tax banter podcast. We love yakking about tax, so we've invited a range of tax experts and practitioners to have a chat with us. We hope you enjoy this episode of Tax Yak. I'm Leanne Hayes, a senior tax trainer with Tax Banter and your host of today's podcast. I am joined today by two of my fabulous colleagues, Michael Messner and Michael Bode, who are also both senior tax trainers with Tax Banter. Welcome to Tax Yak. Thank you, Lee. Thank you, Lee. Good to be here. <laughs> tax residency questions have been making a regular appearance in the courts this year. So far, we've had seven different cases involving 10 different taxpayers. This is on the back of a pretty significant decision last year in Harding's case. Michael Messner, why do you think we are seeing so many residency cases at the moment? Good question, Lee. Um, I think there's multiple factors uh, really playing into this. Number one, um, in the past, we obviously always had the desire to be a non-resident, um, to have a lower tax base as a taxpayer. And in addition to that, potentially lower rates. Um, more and more, we see a mobile workforce though. Um, the cloud, everything's happening in the cloud remotely. We see that now with COVID as well. Um, therefore, people can just do the work from elsewhere. And obviously, it's attractive to move to a low-cost jurisdiction, a uh, low-tax jurisdiction. Uh, save some tax, but the Australian government still wants to obviously maintain their revenue. And last but not least, there's really this problem here, and Michael Bode will have a lot of history to tell us about this one. It's the origins of our um, definition of a tax resident. We inherited that from the British, the Canadians used it, um, the British obviously used it, the Kiwis used it, the Kiwis got rid of that definition three years ago, the British five years ago, the Canadians seven years ago, we're the only ones still using it. And it originated in the 1700s. It talks about concepts like a domicile, a usual place of abode, a permanent place of abode, ordinarily residing. Nobody really knows what the difference is. It feels like the judges are just making it up as they go along. That's so never... where you're laying your hat. Who wears a hat these days? That's exactly <laughs> right. So we feel we don't have a clear guideline. And what happened in the other countries is that they've replaced this, uh, these tests with a 183-day test. Simple and straightforward. Michael Bode, have you been in the country for 183 days last year? If so, congratulations, you're a tax resident. If not, well, then you're not as simple as that. I was just going to say that this, this raises the concern. Is that enough? 183-day tests. Um, and some of these old concepts, I think, still are at play and, and I think are still valid. But I don't want to preempt some of my thoughts on that front. <laughs> um, I think it was interesting, Michael, you said that sort of non-residency is perhaps our preference. But is it really? Is there benefits to being a resident? Absolutely. Um, your main residence exemption, you would have lost that as a yeah. non-resident, obviously effective 30 June 2020. Um, and in addition to that, we also get a tax-free threshold, obviously, if we are at least a mm -hmm. part-year resident, and we've got to be a bit careful about the calculation there, because it's not like the $18,200 is scaled per month. There's actually a base amount of around $13,000 um, if you are only a tax resident for one day in the year. Um, mm. So, yeah, there's obviously benefits here, and um, it, it's all about tax planning here. What do you want to achieve? Well, I was actually going to ask that. I might, might raise that with Michael Bode. Can you choose to be a resident? Can you choose to be a non-resident? We'd like to think so. Of course you can. <laughs> that's what we get paid for. Well, that's what we get paid for. It's a question of fact, is it not? Well, as much as you can choose what your intention is, yes. 
I would argue that yes, you can change your, you can choose whether you want to be changing your residency. And indeed, I would argue that there's nothing necessarily wrong with that. If you're doing it purely for tax reasons, then you might be in breach of part 4A. But you can certainly be choosing to do things that mean that your tax residency is reflecting what your life circumstances are, I would certainly be saying. That's right. And as per usual with part 4A, what is the major reason for you leaving the cold climates of Melbourne and moving to sunny Singapore? It's not tech savings. It's all about the warmer weather. <laughs> we can always be cynical <laughs> about these things. But then the fact of the matter is, is that a lot of people do, that do make these decisions almost purely for tax reasons. A lot of these people might be listening to the podcast at this very moment. And, and our interest really is in the technical issues of what the tax rules are and how they apply to people's circumstances without fear or favour, I would say. Yeah, absolutely. So I think we probably should go through what, what these tests are. So I might get Michael, just Michael Messner, you can hit us off. What are the four tests we're looking at? We have four tests and they are actually applied in order. Interestingly enough, all four tests cannot tell you that you are a non-resident for tax purposes. That's just not possible. The only thing that the test can actually tell is that you are a resident for tax purposes. Well, by extension of that, if you fail all four tests and none of the four tests tells you that you're a tax resident, then by definition, you are a non-resident. That's the important thing to take note here of. So the first test that we have is the ordinarily resides test. And the word ordinarily means Michael Boat will be telling us a lot about the application of common law here. Um, the next test that we have is the domicile and extended domicile test. Again, originated in common law. We actually have a domiciles act of Australia. I didn't know that until recently. And then we have 183 days and a super test as well. And uh, obviously all of those also operate in conjunction with the DTAs. There might be tiebreaker tests in there as well, but we'll get to that later. So Michael, why don't you just kick us off on the ordinarily resides test? Where do you start? What questions do you ask your clients? What do you look out for? I ask a very simple question. You're almost lining me up for a very technical discussion here, but my view on it is actually to look at it in a very untechnical way because the deeper you go into the technical, the more confused you can often get. So my test for where you would nearly reside is, where's the dog? And, and, and that reflects the fact that what we're talking about in the ordinary resides test is a whole lot of common law that is determining where what your intention is. And that's the focus of ordinarily resides, but it's a whole bunch of different case decisions that are built up over the years as, as representative of indicators as to why that what would be what the facts represent would be expected to be your intention at that in that point in time. So they, they're trying to make it an objective test out of a subject, subjective test, ultimately, what is your intention is a subjective test. But they're not going to believe you when you stand in the, in the box and say, yes, it was definitely my intention to live in Dubai. I know I'm an alcoholic, but that's, <laughs> I was going to get past it. <laughs> Just jokes. Um, so, you know, but, but the point is, is that there are a lot of objective tests out there that are, that are, um, that all, that, so hence the dog comment that those are factors that indicate your state of mind at the time. Um, that you're moving, I guess. So that's that's yeah, my perspective I've, on it. I've always thought that it, it's very, very hard argument to get over if your children and spouse are living here in Australia and you're not. It doesn't mm. really matter where you are. It's where your family is. And I guess they're looking after the dog. Well, we've seen heaps. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, the dog and the family. These are, yeah, exactly. Yeah, the same lines. And that feeds my dog case back into the family issue that we're seeing a lot in recent cases. Um, 
Mind you, yeah. I would argue that the judges would probably um, uh, put a bit more weighting on where the family is rather than the dog, but the dog comes <laughs> Yes, you, you're not taking your dog to Dubai. <laughs> you never know. If it, maybe if he's closer to your heart and you actually want him with you, you do, and that's an indication that you're non-resident. And I think I think this actually is very factual and is important here. We have to consider those factors. And as a practitioner out there, that means we can't just go based on a checklist. We need to understand what actually constitutes ordinarily residing in Australia. And we need to really think and talk to the client about what are the factors here that we can observe. Again, what is your intention? Um, what are you planning on doing? And Michael, you, you touched up on a really important thing here. Um, where is the family? And Lee, obviously you mentioned as well, where's the family? And Lee, you said that has always been an important element for you. We just actually had a case in this space. There was Mr. Joubert against, um, the commissioner and in this case Mr Joubert had moved uh, overseas to Singapore the family remained in Perth he returned in the financial year 26 times to Australia but really that means every second weekend he was back for a while and maybe took a couple of extended days off to make it worth his while to fly back from Singapore but other than that he actually lived in Singapore and what the court found in this case was pretty clean and clear because the wife and the children still lived in Perth that was where he ordinarily resided at that point in time and I think this is really a landmark case, not just because it gives us some clarity in this space, but there's a lot more now riding on this. Think about COVID. We have so many taxpayers who returned to Australia, maybe for a holiday, maybe because they felt Australia was going to be a safer spot for them to hide out, trying to leave the country now. And I had a friend who was about to move to Egypt with his family. His belongings were already on the ocean in a, in a um, cargo ship. And uh, about 10 hours before his flight out of Perth into Dubai, he got a phone call, flight is cancelled. And by the way, the Australian government has um, barred all citizens from leaving the country. And he was stuck in Perth at that point in time. Now, let me ask you guys, if his intention was to live at that point in Egypt, he had packed everything up. His family and himself only had suitcases and they were in a hotel for the last night before they were about to leave Egypt. And yet they're actually still in Australia for another three months after that. Are they tax residents, yes or no? That is so hard. I mean, the legislation just talks about that test is saying someone who resides in Australia um, doesn't talk about I know we talk about it being ordinarily resides, but but that's where the test is sitting and that's where he currently is. Um, he's got the history, he's got the enduring connection to Australia. Um, that is really hard. Um, has he left, lived overseas previously? To make it harder, yes, mm. he has. He spent the last six months in Egypt, only that. He came in once in between over Christmas but the family had never left Australia during that time, never lived in Egypt before. Mm. And in fact, in Egypt, he lived in a hotel, but he had just signed a lease and picked up the keys before he came back for a week mm -hmm. to pick up the family. Yet his furniture was still on the ocean. Mm. Yeah. I think you're going to be looking at another test there. I would have thought that technically, yes, but practically, no. Um, at issue on the technical front is, is that the, the cases refer to the actual length of stay being a factor in determining whether your residency has changed or not as an indicator of your intention. 
And I think that that's also a little bit of an integrity measure that's introduced by the judges as part of the criteria that's involved. So I think that the client would have a at least a prima facie great difficulty, a very high risk of detection risk, and um, and, uh, and and potentially a difficult time to convince any court that that was his intention. Um, his prior, as you say, the, 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 that's the pertinent question is, is his history may come into play here. And if his true mm. connections are with Egypt on the long term, and that seems reasonable to an outside party, then all of those factors may end up with a decision that it goes the other way. This is the uncertainty of a ordinarily resides question, isn't it? Mm. I was going to say, he, he, his intent, he's, he's got his stuff on a boat. I think his intent, well, his intention enough, I guess, is the question there. But this is where it Would practically... Have thought so. Would, would you just jump over this, this test and go to something like domicile, which I think will be his downfall? That's right. And I just want to make clear, I wanted to discuss this in the light of the ordinarily resides test, because there is already our problem with this specific test. Did he ordinarily reside at that point in time still in Australia? And I would say, I don't know myself, I'm struggling with this one, but think about it. He was staying in an Airbnb for another two and a half months before he actually left the country, before he got the permit to leave the country. Um, the Airbnb, the two daughters shared a bedroom. They lived out of their suitcases for two and a half months. Um, uh, they did, the, the daughters were attending the online learning sessions from their British high school in Egypt in the evening and at nighttime when the sessions were actually on. Um, that worked throughout the night during Egyptian business hours to actually get the work done. So in, from that point of view, they were sleeping in until 11 in the morning so they could do the Egyptian time. Um, is that ordinarily residing? Is that what an ordinary Aussie does? At the same time, I have to <laughs> highlight though, that they were still supporting the um, uh, Fremantle Dockers at the time and were watching the games at the time. So that's probably what someone, oh, someone who ordinarily resides in Perth does at that point in time. It, it's really confusing. Yeah, no, you don't want to watch yeah. the footy. That's that's your downfall. That's right. If you're from the <laughs> Eastern States, you don't. <laughs> <laughs> and I think this highlights the problem with these residency tests, isn't it? It's so subjective and it's a weighing up of these factors. And one factor that might help you for this test might not necessarily help you with the next test in fact could even go go against you it's an extreme example mm. i mean you know like like leanne said you know, your domicile test will apply your 183 test 83 day test might apply in that circumstance but it, it is a very interesting technical question about your ordinarily resides mm. and, and how far could you push it and yeah you've got that also i guess the concept of, of continuity of association with australia i mean you take that case from the the, con the concept from joubert um, and what's your continuity of association with Australia when you are actually living in Australia? <laughs> uh, that, yeah. that might be a little bit difficult to get past. Uh, so I think you've got a lot mm. of difficulties to be arguing that one on a technical level, even if you mm. are able to isolate it to just ordinarily resides. That would be my take yeah. on that one. I wouldn't touch that one with a 10-foot pike pole. <laughs> so maybe we should move on to the domicile test. Uh, sorry, I oh. just wanted to ask you firstly, if you don't mind, what are some other factors oh. that we usually look out for then when we talk about the ordinary resides test? I, don't, I know we don't want to give hard and fast rules, but what else do we look out for? Well, it's quite interesting because cases that have... Um, a couple of years ago, there was a series of cases which kind of almost read as a checklist. So close your bank account, um, cancel your Medicare card, cancel your private health insurance. And that got one of those taxpayers across the line. So we saw later on in that same year, a taxpayer who really appeared to have just got that list and did, 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 but they still had the house here. They still had that enduring connection. And then that makes it, you know, 
we're trying to use these checklists, which which the courts have just said it's not a checklist. It's just a weighing up of those factors. Um, and I think it's that ordinarily resides is is about that sort of enduring connection. Um, you know, we we joked about the football team, but that's part of it. If you, you know, join the work well, um, the work soccer team or, or whatever it happens to be, the, the work netball team, you sort of again have that kind of social social ties here. That's right. And I just can't think of uh, one specific case. I forgot the name of the case, but it was a taxpayer who um, didn't have property in Australia, came back a couple of times a year to stay with his mum in her house. And he had his old car from 20 years parked in the shed, just paid Reggie for it. And nobody used it because mum didn't know how to drive. And I think she was legally blind. And uh, every time he came back to three times a year for maybe a week, he drove around in his car. And that car being there just for his personal use was already enough to get him across the line so we want to be careful there at least um yeah don't have the car registered in your name sitting there for your use (laughs) don't rent out your property i think that's the other important one even though it's not a hard and fast rule but you just want to be a bit careful about that yeah but then we had the guy that had um it was based in queensland and he was an avid shooter so he had i think the the, yes and I loved it. The um the, the the judgment or the the finding, the tribunal finding talked about him having an armory of weapons um in his house. I think they were too scared to say he was anything other than what he wanted to be. Um, <laughs> but the reality in that case, of course, was that there was a reason why he kept the house. There was a reason why he didn't rent it because it was actually keep it because it was storing his, his weapons, and he needed to have that Queensland address to keep his gun license, which he enjoyed doing when he came back to Australia. And he wasn't a resident. Mind you, I can't remember which test that was, So, I, um, but presumably not resident under the ordinary resides test or, or he would have been found a resident. No, exactly right. No, it was insufficient uh, ne- uh, nexus to being an or- to ordinarily residing. Mm. There was just not that yeah. association there. It was not deemed to be sufficient, mm. which I found to be amazing. And I think one last comment from me on this test is really it also depends on who your judge is on the day. Absolutely. It's almost strange that you've got this situation of them trying to examine your mind, you know, and we, we need to do examine our minds in order to determine what the tax treatment of something is. It's almost like something out of 1984, uh, the book. You know, <laughs> you know, we're all hiding behind the TV to make sure they don't see us when we do these different things. And we're trying to line up our Absolutely. room and make it look like we're, we're doing a certain thing. Um, yeah, it'd be nice if the tests were a lot more objective and subjective yes. and have to play all these games. I, I find it astounding we know about the marital relationships of most of these taxpayers. Um, this, this couple was experiencing well, problems, so they're less likely to be resident, and this one wasn't. You don't want to go into a residency case, light, case lighthearted because all of your dirty laundry will be hung out to dry. That's the 100%. You know, you've, you've, you've got cases like Joubert with all of his personal relationships all available for everybody to see, and then all of us tax trainers mm. are there discussing it on a regular basis, on a daily basis, <laughs> to this poor blokes personal affairs you always feel sorry for these people that are involved in these cases so yeah you don't really want to be close to the line because you don't want to end up in court that's probably a really important um, thing to be considering always with these with any residency case i just want to congratulate lee you've given us a fantastic segue into the domiciles test because the big one that stands out in that space is mr harding and he was married got divorced got married again and got divorced again so he was changing his <laughs> partners and wives and like people change their It's good tax planning, really. <laughs> you can't put your you can't put your put your, you got to make sure that you got marital problems and that your family are in a fairly small house, not in a four bed bedroom house like Joubert. Hmm. Small house and make sure you you muck up when you go overseas. Hang on, are we live? 
We are like, yeah, yes, we are. Sure. No, I'm, I'm kidding. Means I'm being very cynical, but that you know that's an unfortunate. Um, Michael Bode has his engagement anniversary on Saturday. <laughs> I hope his wife doesn't hear that before it's this pro- Saturday, podcast. It's tomorrow. Before it's tomorrow. It's tomorrow. That's all right. He's a resident. We don't have to worry. <laughs> yeah. No, and then um, the domicile test is obviously you only get to that once you're past that ordinarily resides test, which is why Harding needed to sort of get over that hurdle of explaining why his wife was here and why he was overseas and and he wasn't a a resident under the ordinarily resides test. So then the domicile brings in, you mentioned that before, Michael, about the um, domicile act. That's right. What is a domicile in the first place? That's the question I get all the time. And uh, it actually goes back, if you allow me to just comment on that. I find the story hilarious to this, well, even before the 1700s, um, because this is co- we're a common law country. Um, it is about the law of the land. And back in the 1700s, there was no country of United Kingdom of Great Britain and Northern Ireland. Um, it was just the kingdom, uh, the king's domain at the time, which included the empire. Uh, whether it was India, whether it was Nepal, whether it was Australia, the United States or Canada, even the United States obviously got independent earlier, but that's just a fact. So there were no real borders within the common law area, uh, country or realm realm at the time. And the idea was that um, in the 17 or 1500s, where were you born? And the other answer is your father's piece of land. Where would you have grown up? On your father's piece of land. Would you have ever left your father's piece of land? Probably not. No, you would have. You would have. Why? How would you? To fight the French. Straightforward. (laughs) Where would you have gone after that? Back to your father's piece of land. That's where you would have gotten married. That's where you would have then, you would have inherited that land at some point in time, whether in trust for the whole family or whatever it was. Um, And you would have lived there and gotten married there yourself, had your kids there yourself. And that was the story. And so they needed a methodology because country borders didn't exist to just group somewhere, someone to somewhere because we were all loyal subjects of his majesty. And therefore that concept of the domicile um, arose that way. And therefore where your father was born, the place where your father was born, that is actually your domicile. Someone asked me, what happens if I don't know who my father is? Then it's the place where your mother was born. What if you don't know who your mother is either, where she was born? Believe it or not, then it is the place where you were found. But that's only one way of acquiring a domicile. And you can have multiple domiciles. You can also acquire domicile in Australia if you spent your formative years in Australia, i.e. 10 years under the age of 18. And you can also acquire domicile in Australia if you take steps to associate with Australia long-term, to stay long-term. I would usually call this, you've been a permanent resident for a very long time, or you even became a citizen. Um, Certainly that oath of allegiance to Her Majesty the Queen that I swore when I became a a citizen of Australia, that's what I consider to have really given me that second domicile at that point in time. So most people don't know this. What's a domicile? They haven't done their homework, and I think that's where the problem here starts. So if I wash up on the uh, beach at the British Virgin Islands with amnesia and don't know anything about where my parents are, unfortunately, I am still caught by Australia because they consider that I'm born there, unfortunately. Yeah. The interesting one is actually Barnaby Joyce, if you allow me. Um, Barnaby Joyce's father was born in New Zealand. And at the time, the New Zealand Citizenship Act said that anyone who has a domicile in New Zealand is also a citizen. 
Now, Barnaby never checked, and for that reason, he found out a couple of years ago that he was a citizen of New Zealand. So this concept is very relevant, not when it comes to taxation only, but even citizenship to some degree. I'd say the interesting take on the whole concept of domicile from, from an evidentiary perspective, and I, and I liken it to income tax. And if you uh, allow me to digress, you know, the, the, the fact that they always want to be able to detect income. So they're often, often designing tax rules around the ability to detect it. So you have that with income tax in the first place. It was an often a very easy, easily detectable tax. It was supposed to be brought in on a temporary level to fight wars, as, it, as taxes always are. But now, of course, we still have it to this day. The domicile test was, a, was a, again, one of these, and it's the circumstance of going off and fighting the French that was Mr. Mesner here is discussing. That is exactly that. You know, they want to make sure that you can detect these people. You know where they're from. You want to be able to capture them for tax. Therefore, you need that, that additional test. And they're always trying to overreach with, with, with tax mm. governments and tax rules. So they're trying to capture as many people as possible. So we have the situation today where you've got rules that are based on, you know, who is, how is it more easy to detect who is that resident based on principles of how easy is it to detect them from hundreds of years ago uh, that still apply today um, uh, overlaid mm. with, with other principles that are applying, uh, including just wanting to grab, grab as many people as possible. So hence we have yeah. multiple tests that can all apply and concepts like domicile that seem almost ludicrous in today's world in many respects when you apply them, still, <laughs> yeah. still carrying on. But Having the Australian domicile is not necessarily enough to be a resident under this test, as Mr Harding found out as well, mm. luckily for him. Um, what else do we need? Or I can we, answer it. We need a permanent place of abode. And um, not Michael Boat, but a boat. <laughs> That's an important one. Um, even though Michael Boat can help you to establish whether you have a permanent place of abode. The place of abode is, is my house. The usual place of abode is there's a bar up the road that... Uh, <laughs> considered to be that place it's interesting though because in the past michael you're, you're mentioning something really important here um this is not a defined term again it takes its ordinary meaning and in the past the judges actually opened a dictionary the macquarie australian english dictionary and said permanent means constant all the time and an abode is actually a dwelling now what is a dwelling it is a house or an apartment where you usually reside okay where your stuff is where you can usually be found and that is another problem today these days that um, in our global and more interconnected world people moving around not only is the question where was your father born usually irrelevant um, also the question, hey, I don't have a house here, it doesn't matter, and some of my stuff is here and there, and that's a bit of a problem, but we had a lot of, a lot of a, a bit of a revelation there in terms of what a place of a boat can be, and uh, Michael, help us out, what was the finding in Harding? Well, uh, it was very, very good for, for Mr Harding, uh, key elements were is that he had a, he had a furnished apartment, um, and it was uh, you know, ultimately provided uh, with connections through the employer was relatively temporary and he moved around into different ones. So furnished and the fact that the place of abode could be an entire country was the key takeaway from Harding. So even though he did move around a little bit, um, that was it would recognise that that was still a permanent place of abode because it was within the same country. And to an extent that was seen as a more modern take on the concept, I guess, because exactly. of the fact that it recognises that people did do move around a lot more. And more often, people are having furnished apartments, etc. Uh, simply have, you know, having your own homewares on the wall is not necessarily as common thing and expected. You know, you're not expected to buy your own couch when you go over mm. to another country anymore. Yeah. Uh, you, yeah. 
I was going to say I was involved in an audit where the they were, it was this test, um, and they were interested in working out the tax officer's focus was well. If you're really trying to tell me that you had that permanent place of abode overseas, when you came back to Australia, you would have brought your stuff. We want to see a list mm. from the shipping container of what was in there, mm. what your, what stuff you brought back to Australia. And I would have thought a lot of the time it's probably cheaper to sell any stuff you've got, if that even is relevant, than it is to bring it back to Australia. So harding is such a good result. That is rightly. And I just have a fantastic example here. My sister decided a couple of years ago that it's time to follow up on our roots and move to Germany. She signed a lease. Um, Happy days. It was an unfurnished apartment. So she had to provide her own furniture. But interestingly enough, a couple of weeks later, she got a phone call from the previous tenant. And the previous tenant called her up and said, oh, this is to serve notice on you that you have to buy my kitchen from me at the statutory price. And my sister said, what are you on about? Believe it or not, in Germany, if an investor buys a rental apartment in the first place, usually that is without a kitchen. There is the plumbing and everything's ready, but there's no kitchen cabinets installed. And the first tenant then goes out and buys a kitchen and gets it installed in the apartment. And that obviously creates a problem that if the tenant eventually moves out, well, there's no point ripping out the kitchen. What are you going to do with it? And that's why they many, many decades ago actually passed the law that the outgoing tenant has the right to sell to the incoming tenant that kitchen at a written down value and it depreciates at a rate of, I think, seven point something percent per year. So all that oh, outgoing wow. tenant actually did was say, here's my statutory notice. You need to pay me. And at the time it was 6,000 euros for this kitchen. And my sister had to transfer the money. And when she terminated lease two years later, she did exactly the same at the further written down value. Now, if you compare that to our concept of, well, do you have a permanent place of abode? So are you telling me that because of German legislation and what is done in another country? And I think that's a major theme here as well. We're talking about tax residency, how things are done internationally and things are done differently internationally. Are you telling me because my sister moved to Germany where she had to buy her own kitchen, she was having a permanent place of abode over there. But if instead she would have moved to South Africa where the kitchen comes with it, she would have maybe not had the permanent place of abode over there. Yes, Which is why sense. Harding is such a good decision. Yeah. Mm. You can and look at the, the place you intend to call home. And I guess that'd be the good side of the Joubert case is that, you know, the, the, the temporary, common temporary nature of people living in Singapore was recognised um, there as a factor weighing against the fact that he was actually quite temporarily over there, even though it didn't, it didn't win him the case. That was certainly at least a factor that Singapore is a type of country where you would ordinarily have that type of arrangement which is comforting. Yeah. Now, Michael, interesting enough, you said Harding had the outcome that a place of abode can be a country rather than just a dwelling. And if I recall correctly, the judge actually said a city or a country. Well, the country is bigger, so we go with the country. And the judges even <laughs> mentioned, if I recall correctly, but didn't conclude whether even a region could be a place of abode. And when I heard that region going back to Europe, I'm thinking about the European Union, which actually allows you to easily move from country to country if you have a residence title or if you're a citizen. And that means theoretically that you could be spending, and I, I could definitely do that, think about that, 
30 days in the south of France, followed by 30 days on Greek islands, followed by 60 days skiing in St. Moritz, just before spending some time in the Swedish fjords. Doesn't that still allow me then to have a permanent place of abode overseas? Maybe if I'm sailing from country to country, as long as I stay within the European Union waters, and I'm not a tax resident of Australia, but at the same time, I'm probably not then a tax resident of any of those European countries either, because I'm hopping from country to country. Could that potentially leave me as a tax resident of nowhere? Yes, very, inter very interesting question. And you often have this with yachtsmen that, that, that are attempting that exact result with all of their pay coming out of a company from the British Virgin Islands. Can we make sure we don't step anywhere? That was... I was brought to mind Monaco for, for an example there as, as an example. You're not going to have to go far from Monaco to step into another country. I wonder whether that could be, you know, Harding's case, how you apply that to somebody that moves to, moves to Monaco. You would, you would certainly you'd think that you'd be able to step out outside Monaco a few five kilometres up the road and still be considered to have a permanent place of abode just because you've moved that short <laughs> distance. <laughs> I don't like your chances. <laughs> <laughs> but the citizen of the world concept is a very interesting one and then both both on a technical and a practical level a lot of people are achieving it even though these laws are designed against it and i would argue that the domicile test albeit a very ancient and cryptic test is actually required to capture these modern people of the world and we need a form of it i think to to capture these guys um, you know, how do you capture people if we're only talking about 183 day test um, uh, or indeed intention, which could be easily uh, hidden by, you know, hiding all of your intentions behind the TV, LO84, you know, do, do we actually need a domicile test that pins people down on the basis of evidence to stop people being able to be um, tax, you know, residents I'm, of the world? Yeah. I'm going to, I'm going to object to that statement though, Michael, respectfully, mm. because um, again, should it really matter the place where your father was born or that you didn't know your father and therefore it's where your mother was born instead? Should that matter know. and make you Texas in North Australia? Because you might have someone whose father was born in Australia. They were not born in Australia, never lived in Australia. And because they're hopping from country to country, they are now a resident taxpayer of Australia. Seems really good point. Pay. Really good point. And in some, in some senses, the tax system could be as best served by saying, are you left-handed or right-handed? Will you tax this way and you tax in this country just based on pure chance? But there is the, the, the intention that the, the basis of taxation should be where you're using the facilities, where you're Correct. living. So, so there is a genuine argument behind the 183-day test that, albeit being really simple and really objective, it does measure the amount of time you're physically spending in a place and using the facilities of that country. And maybe we should be moving towards something that's more like that, which is effectively exactly what the border taxation, I guess, is uh, high-level suggesting. So uh, I certainly wouldn't argue with that as a general approach, but I just, yeah, that, that the, peop the, the people that are taxpayers of the world of, of no resident of any country though um i think that that is an issue that's going to still need to be addressed even in that in that landscape if you're simply talking about six months you just keep hopping around um there are many people doing this at, the, at this exact point in time between south in the south pacific for example and working online and they're not paying tax in any country mm. So I guess we probably should talk about the 183 day test it's probably appropriate do we see that one coming up much <laughs> backpackers 
Backpackers, yeah, exactly. <laughs> Not exclusively, but yes. Oh, how could you think yeah, of one of the native three day tests without thinking of backpackers? I, th- I find it quite entertaining. We see the test cases in the backpacker space. And recently we had um, uh, four backpackers um, actually tackle that 183 day test um, unsuccessfully. And we'll go into it technically in a second, but I actually think the 183 day test, and let's let just talk about how we got here quickly. We found we were not ordinarily residing in Australia. We found that we didn't pass the domiciles test, even though we have a permanent place of abode here. Um, because our father wasn't born in Australia and we know who our father is. So we're automatically here at the 183 day test. And I found a lot of application of this test actually in the professional space. You have professionals that are working on a tender or on a project and are being sent to Australia for a year or two, or maybe only those five months. And then the project overruns and all of a sudden the five months become six months. And here we are in the 183 day testing. But the commissioner, of course, needs to be satisfied that your usual place for abode is outside Australia and you're not intending to take up residency here. So I've got usual place of abode as opposed to permanent place of abode. Is there a difference? I think there might be a difference. Yes, there is. And I was just describing it earlier in simplistic terms of my house and a particular establishment up the road. <laughs> I was joking, of course, but yeah. it to a certain degree. Uh, <laughs> uh, but but yeah. this is the thing. I mean, what I think is interesting about all of these tests we have, the usual, you have your, your ordinarily resides test, your 183 day test and the domicile test with the exclusions of permanent place of abode and usual place of abode. And overlay that, of course, with your double tax agreement with your permanent home and, and your, your habitual abode, which are all different words slightly, all with different levels, but all looking at the same things, right? You're looking at the physical characteristics of where you are overseas. You're looking at the, the physical characteristics of what you've got in Australia, how much time you spend here, how much time you spend there, what your intention was, what the actual stay was. All of these factors are repeated in every single one of these tests. So I'm not surprised, and I've been certainly one going through learning all of this, thinking, why does everybody keep saying the same thing? It seems so hard to remember. What's the test for ordinarily resides? What's the test for permanent place of abode? And what's the test for usual place of abode? They're all the same things, aren't they? Well, yeah, pretty much. The only thing is, is that the permanent place of abode does look a little bit more at the overseas factor, the, what, what looking more at overseas and how what the nature of that is. Um, it is less of a tense of intention that is, you know, like a, a reality that ref- is reflecting a state of mind. So permanent place of abode is a test and a literal test of objectivity about the nature of that. But your your connections with Australia, even emotional connections, family can, can impact on that. Um, and usual place of abode is just a slightly lower bar. We're talking about what, and I think of these tests in, in simplistic terms. Your domicile is 10 years, your permanent place of abode is two years and your usual place of abode is six months, right? Well, we've seen some of those backpack, some of those backpacker cases. It can just be mum and dad's place back home. <laughs> well, they're certainly not keen on these backpackers coming into Australia. But yes, yeah, certainly you got Dapa Coelho, where they had the uh, the Spanish individual was found to have a, um, a usual place of abode in Spain, even though he was only there for six months. So confirmed that six month date. I'm being a little cynical with those with that rule of thumb: six months, two years, ten years. Yeah. Um, be, because it's not that, is it? You've got to look at all of the features of of it over there and all of the features of it over back here. But all of these, my point is, is that all of these tests keep repeating over and over again. So to answer yeah. your question, what's the difference between usual place of abode and permanent place of abode? Different threshold, I would answer that. 
Yeah. I find this one very interesting, though, because uh, I recall the case Supermanium versus the Commissioner, an older case in the 183-day um, test space. And um, it, it, the question was, did Ms. Supermanium, Dr. Supermanium, actually, um, have a uh, usual place of abode outside Australia? And here's what actually happened. She was from Singapore. Um, she was elderly. Her son lived in Australia, and she suffered from poor health. So she said, okay, I'm going to temporarily... Um, change my residence to Australia to undergo medical treatment. In order to fund that medical treatment, I'm going to sell my apartment in Singapore. And then unfortunately, um, she got sicker and sicker as she was in Australia. The treatment didn't take and she eventually passed away. In fact, the case was um, contested by her executors, not by her herself. And the question was, well, did she have that usual place of abode? And in this case, the learned judges decided that um, she did not have a usual place of abode outside Australia because she had sold her apartment in Singapore. Yet the visa that she was on was a one-year tourist visa and actually didn't grant her to stay here long term. So I doubt whether her intention was actually to stay in Australia permanently. Um, and I'm just wondering whether that case, if it was heard again today, whether she would have actually be found to be a non-resident because at the time um, it was still before Harding and the definition of a place of abode was again, that dwelling that you have, which she had just sold, unfortunately. If now a country can be a place of abode, would she probably have been a non-resident in that case? Mm. The problem, I think, with this test is the commissioner's opinion. So you're, if you're physically here, you're a resident unless the commissioner is satisfied um, that you've got that usual place or you're not intending to take up residence. And we saw in Addy's case where he just... I guess, didn't specifically turn his mind to it. The court said, well, the commissioner isn't satisfied because he didn't think about it. Therefore, you, you're a resident under that test because you've been here, which was certainly, um, I'm not quite sure, her, her intention. A cynic would say it's interesting, the different take on it, you know, on the inbound side, if they're wealthy, if the government wants it, if the ATO wants the money, then they're, there's one interpretation of if usual place of abode, and if they don't, then there's another. Uh, with the backpackers, is such a stark contrast, isn't it, to the, that case you were just Absolutely. talking about, Michael? And anyway, after the backpackers case, how would they justify a decision in the same way? Um, yeah, I used to joke that, that the commissioner thinks you're a resident of Australia if you've seen Australia on a map, except mm. if you've got a backpack on your back. Yeah, but it is definitely the flip side of Harding that, that um, you know, that, that it means that yeah, potentially... You, you could be considered the usual place of a boat could be considered to exist that mean that the 183 day, day test is accepted. So uh, it, it is interesting that Harding has been applied quite literally to, in, in recent cases, quite specifically to the usual place of a boat test as well. And, a recent, and an example of that was Miss um, Mac, uh, Scottish last name. Uh, McKinnon. McKinnon, that's McKinnon. right. Because she was a backpacker, stayed for a bit, almost a year. And then this, and even though she wanted to stay in Australia permanently, she said, no, the heart wants what it wants. Uh, she moved uh, back to the UK, to Cambridge, to live with her boyfriend that she had met in a banana sorting um, uh, facility in Innisfail. And um, yeah, it was happily ever after for her. But the bottom line was she argued that, no, I did not have a usual place of abode because the country where I was from is Scotland, but prior to that, I'd lived in England, and now I return to the country of England. Well, England and Scotland are not countries, they are nations. We've also got to be, be careful here, what is actually country? And the country is the country of the United Kingdom of Northern Ireland and Great Britain. England and Scotland are not countries, so we've got to be a bit careful about that.
Mm. I, I think one so more thing, what, sorry, one more thing that oh, you sorry, mentioned you earlier, which I think is really important to highlight. For the 183-day test, as you said, we must have been in the country for 183 days and the commissioner must be satisfied that you do not have a usual place of abode. And that is an important one, even though you're satisfied that you don't have a usual place of abode, doesn't matter. And some of us would be joking, well, isn't that always the case? At the end of the day, it's down to the ATO. Um, yes, but here the language specifically says it. Not just do you need to be able to reasonably prove it, the commissioner must be satisfied. And you raise the point, if the commissioner just doesn't consider it, then he can't be reasonably satisfied. Mm, absolutely. So there's one final statutory test, which I've got to say, don't really see it applied too much in practice. And that's, of course, the superannuation test. This test was introduced um, a couple of decades ago just to actually um, be able to text um, um, uh, staff at our embassies and, and our um, high commissions. Uh, that, that, that was the idea that all public servants at the time usually were members of the Commonwealth Superannuation Scheme or the Public Sector Superannuation Scheme. And the CSS closed to new members in 1990 and the PSS to new members in 2005. So unless your client is a bit of an older vintage, it will be extremely unlikely that they're actually members of the CSS or PSS. And that's why we don't consider it as much. Yeah, absolutely. So I guess um, we're probably at the point where we could probably just reflect a little bit on what the Board of Taxation um, is proposing. Um, obviously, we, I mean, we spoke about some of these tests, domicile, it's, they're old, they're antiquated. Um, do we need something else? Um, so the Board of Taxation had a report back in 2018. Um, we've touched on this a little bit already, kind of with a, a bright line test, a 183-day test. But um, picking up your point, Michael Bode, about the citizens of the world, they're looking to supplement that as well, perhaps with, with taking in our specific circumstances. Is this 183-day test something that's done kind of worldwide? Is this a, a commonly accepted way of taxing or bringing people within the residency definition? Yes, it is. Um, and interestingly enough, I mentioned at the beginning of the podcast that we inherited our legislation from the British, um, the Canadians and Kiwis used the same, and all three abandoned that legislation we just discussed. Um, and they all went to a 183-day bright line test. That's what they're doing. And it seems to be working quite well, to be honest. Um, there have been a couple of controversies. If you leave the country one second past midnight, were you actually still in the country on that day? <laughs> And the courts were quite yeah, nonchalant about it and just said, um, yes, you were, period. And you don't apportion days, it's as simple as that. You can literally take a calendar, was I in the country on that day, even if it's only for one second, tick. Did I meet the 183 days? Well, if so, you're a resident taxpayer. If not, you're a non-resident taxpayer. And that's quite easy. And if you think about it, um, we understand that politically, some people could say, oh, it's too easy to be a non-resident or vice versa. That could always be adjusted through the number of days you're required to actually be in Australia to be a resident. Um, you could reduce it to 90 days. If you were in Australia for 90 days, you would be a tax resident. We would have a much larger tax base and a much larger number of taxpayers. Um, similarly, we could increase the number if we find it's too easy to be a tax resident of Australia. And that's one of the beauties of this test. It's really easy to understand. And that brings me to something I frequently mention in my sessions. Part of a good tech system is that the law is giving us certainty and that it's easily understood and applied. And I think everyone can look at the calendar and say, yep, I was in the country on that day or not. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, I think our tests that we've got at the moment, they probably served a purpose back when they were introduced in something like 1930 or something, when you didn't just go and hop on a plane and eight hours later land in another country. You hopped on a boat and eight months later, you landed in a different country. Given the, the mobility of our workforce now, these tests just are, are not appropriate. That's correct. I am a bit disappointed that uh, in the recent budget night announcement, we heard about the changes to the corporate tax residency status, um, simplifying things as well. But we heard nothing on individual tax residents. And that's a bit um, upsetting, really. Um, is that just going to be swept under the rug? And are we going to continue down this path we're on at the moment rather than making changes? It seems to me that way. Why? I'm not 100% sure. But Ultimately, that just means that the groups out there need to know, really go ask the questions, document what the responses from the client are, have evidence on hand and go th carefully through the different tests, apply them. And uh, when I say this to my groups in the sessions, I ask them, okay, so hands up, who actually ever asked their client, where was your father born? Nobody ever did that. And I think that's one of the first questions you'll need to ask in the future. <laughs> Excellent. Well, when the three of us rewrite the law, We'll, we'll keep these pillars in mind, these simplicities. That's right. Thank you, Michael, for that fabulous chat today. Thank you very much for having us, Lee. Thank you, Leanne. Enjoyed it very much. Thanks for listening to this episode of Tax Shack. I've been chatting with Michael Messner and Michael Bode. If you'd like to connect with us on social media, you can find Tax Banter on LinkedIn and Twitter. Let us know your take on episodes or suggest future topics or guests. You can also get onto the Tax Shack team on email, podcast at taxbanter.com.au and find our regular blog articles at taxbanter.com.au forward slash banter hyphen blog. If you're enjoying our podcast, please take a moment to rate and review for the show wherever you are. It will help improve the profile of the show and we would love to hear your thoughts. We look forward to you joining us next time.